a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you are looking for a place where you can bask in independent thought, where nobody's going to call you out for failing to march along with the narrative or to chant in unison with the rest of the crowd, this is that place. And I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm just here to encourage you to think clearly and independently, which it turns out is almost a full-time, 24-7 job in the times in which we live. Holy cow, the propaganda is thick. It's uh, swirling around us like a blizzard 24-7. So let's uh, let's do our best to sort out what's going on. Let's uh, do our best not to panic, but to make sense of it and where we need to to stand up for what's right. I know it's a lofty goal. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like, you know what, this is doing no good. It's not working. <laughs> we're, not, we're not making the difference, but trust me, we are. We are making that difference, even if uh, even if things on the grander scale seem to be, um, how can I put this, chaotic? All right. We've got a lot to cover today. I want to mention that we have some great sponsors who make this show possible. They include HSLAmmo.com, also SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So I, one of the things that has been uh, a huge shift for me. This is probably as big, if not bigger, than than COVID itself in terms of just, whoa, look at the world changing around us, has been the speed with how quickly the monetary, uh, the monetary systems of the world have been converted into tools to control people, populations, and nations. Now, I'm, I'm going to get into some specifics here, but particularly... There is a push right now toward central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. And this is something that uh, I would strongly recommend keeping an eye on because this has direct impact on uh, whether or not you maintain your autonomy or not. From the upheavalsubstack.com, N.S. Lyons has a great article about why to just say no to those central bank central bank digital currencies, and it starts with a, a nice hypothetical scenario. You awake to find that today is special. It's Stimmy Day, and when you roll over and check your phone, you see a notification from your Fed Wallet app letting you know that another two thousand dollars in Fed coins has just been added directly to your account by the U.S. Federal Reserve. Now, to be honest, part of you would rather say, would love to save that money for the long term, given that things have been getting rather uncertain and actually kind of crazy lately, what with the war and the economy and all, but you can't, since these Fed coins are coded as usable for consumer purchases only, and they will expire and vanish in seven days, so you better spend them while you've got them. Oh, the latest play box it is then. Everyone says Elden Ring 3 is the hottest VR game on the metaverse right now, and you've really wanted to join in. And since you're stubbornly old-fashioned, you decide to check it out at Bezos Mark on the way home from work today before you get it delivered by drone to your tiny apartment. But first, you begin your day as you always do with a quick stop at the local Starbrats automated no-contact drive-through latte dispensary. 
Opening your FedWallet app and vaguely waving your smartphone at the machine is enough to complete the transaction. $14 in Fed coins are instantly deleted from your digital account at the Fed and recreated in the Starbrats corporate account well before the sweet coffee-flavored milk beverage is deposited into your eager, grasping hands. Your morning starts to go downhill quickly, however, when you realize that your SUV is almost out of gas. You pull the old clunker with its antiquated combustion engine into the nearest open station you can find. It looks pretty run down, and you roll up to the pump. A dull-eyed teenager in a face mask inserts a nozzle into your vehicle and waits for you to prepay. You wave your phone at the pump. Nothing happens. You try again. Your phone buzzes and you look at it. There's a message from the Fed. You've already spent more than the $400 maximum weekly limit on fossil fuel specified in the Fed wallet user agreement. Your remaining account balance cannot be used to purchase non-renewable energy resources. Please make an alternative purchase. Have you considered a clean, affordable, new energy vehicle? Thank you for doing your part to build a more just and sustainable world. Now, you have, in fact, considered purchasing a new affordable new energy vehicle, but they still aren't very affordable for you. What with the supply chain shortages? Despite the instant credit the Fed would add to your balance when buying an electric car, plus the permanent 10% general subsidy you automatically receive on every purchase as a as a uh, BIPOC individual, thanks to the Fed's Reparations Alternatives for Comprehensive Equity, or RACE program, the down payment on a new car would still be more than you can afford, even with your new STEMI coins. Well, you're not going to be able to make it to work at the warehouse on what you have in the tank. How could you be so foolish? You're going to have no choice but to park here and blow a bunch of money on hailing one of those sleek, incredibly expensive electric uh, self-driving cabs to take you there instead. But as you're about to tap the screen to do so, you notice there's a classic fast food joint next door. Might as well head there to unload a little stimmy money. Nothing makes you feel better like a greasy breakfast sandwich. Entering the establishment and sidling up to the old touchscreen kiosk, you order a McCracken with extra bacon. But when you wave your phone to pay, an error message pops up again. You've exceeded your weekly purchase limit for complex animal protein, as stipulated in the Fed Wallet user agreement. Have you considered purchasing a delicious vegan or mealworm alternative? Thank you for doing your part to build a more just and sustainable world. Now, this is a sandwich too far for you during an especially hard week. Ah, oh, the Fed Wallet is so freaking lame, you post on Twitter, or twatter, rather, excuse me, as you idle hungrily in front of the kiosk. Your message has been flagged for review, says an immediate notification. As a reminder, using ableist hate speech may impact your ESG score and future financing opportunities. Thank you for doing your part to build a more just and inclusive world. Oh my goodness, this is absurd. Life was so much better before FedCoin when we still had cash. You post again to Twatter, unable to control yourself. Your account has been locked pending national security review says a notification from FedWallet. As a reminder, the proliferation of false or misleading narratives which sow discord or undermine public trust in government institutions is classified as a potential domestic terrorism offense by the Department of Homeland Security. We value your feedback. You jerk awake, fumbling at your phone with trembling, sweaty fingers. Oh, my goodness, thank goodness, it was just a terrible dream. You just dozed off while you were reading uh, Rod Dreher's blog. Ouch, that was a slam. You can still eat all the steak and bacon you want. There's nothing to worry about. But no, you're actually reading Politico and you see with horror that President Biden has just released a sweeping executive order directing the government 
to immediately begin moving to comprehensively regulate cryptocurrencies while developing a digital dollar issued by the Federal Reserve. My administration places the highest urgency on research and development efforts into the potential design and deployment options of a United States CBDC, he declares, in a line probably narrated in a creepy whisper. You are racked by foreboding amid the sudden cawing of ravens. <laughs> now, you have to admit, this is a pretty, pretty good way to introduce people to at least the, the practical possibilities of what a central bank digital currency could mean. But do you get the idea of how this could be the stuff of totalitarian nightmares? Now, from here, the article goes into some details here. Let's start with the basics. What is a CBDC? As the term implies, it's digital money issued directly by a central bank. You might assume that you're already using digital currency right now since you rarely use physical cash anymore. Instead, buying everything with a credit card or a digital payment app. You impulse buy something on Amazon. These do their thing with the ones and zeros and whatnot over the Internet. And boom, numbers are moved between accounts. But in truth, the process of moving money from A to B is vastly more complicated than that. It involves a tangle of payment processors, banks holding federal debt, financial clearinghouses, and if your money's crossing borders, international communication and exchange systems like the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, or SWIFT. I think you've heard a little bit about that recently. Now, since generally the actual money itself doesn't move, Each institution must take on risks to fulfill your transaction by accepting promises, sending transfers, and verifying receipt of funds, etc. So naturally, many fees are collected along the way for such services. Well, a CBDC system would be radically simplified. A customer opens an account directly with a country's independent central bank, let's say the Federal Reserve, and the Central Reserve Bank issues, or rather creates, digital money whether it's denominated as dollars or Fed coins or whatever in that account. This makes the money a direct liability of the Fed rather than a private bank. Using digital tools like a Fed wallet app, the customer can initiate direct transactions between Fed accounts. The digital money is deleted in one account, it's recreated in another one essentially instantaneously. No promises or trust is necessary. Every transaction permanently recorded on a digital crypto cryptographic ledger in real time. Kind of like Bitcoin, but exquisitely centrally managed. I'm going to come back to this uh, commentary in just a few moments. Does it have your attention? Let's hope so. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Before I get back to this excellent column from the Upheaval Substack about uh, what exactly is a CBDC and why should we say no, take Nancy Reagan's advice and just say no, let me first start by encouraging you to click on the link I provide in my sponsor links which are found in my daily show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Particularly, I want you to click on lifesavingfood.com and pay close attention to the ultimate food storage and solar package that is being offered right now. Now, whether you are just getting started on building a food storage supply or whether you've been doing it for a long time, this is a very comprehensive package. 
pretty much everything you need to to eat, to filter water, to cook with, and uh, it's it's for for the time being. This is really affordable. I'll let you decide though for yourself. Click on the link. Be sure to send some love in the direction of lifesavingfood.com. I sure appreciate having them as a sponsor. And you're going to know more about why that is a little bit later on in today's show. So let's go back to the idea about just say no to central bank digital currencies. And I, I love how NS Lyons, writing for the Upheaval Substack, paints the picture of what life would be under a centrally controlled digital currency. In which uh, you have this, this currency with which to conduct transactions, but the Fed retains complete oversight and control over the creation, destruction, and movement of money, no matter who has it or where it happens to be at the moment. Or as uh, Augustin Karstens, general manager of the Bank of International Settlements, put it at a 2020 summit of the International Monetary Fund, we don't know who's using a $100 bill today. We don't know who's using a 1,000 peso bill today. The key difference with CBDC is the central bank will have absolute control on the rules and regulations that will determine the use of that expression of central bank liability, meaning the money, and that we will also have the technology to enforce that. And that makes a huge difference, end quote. Now, N.S. Lyons says, moreover, in such a centralized system, there is no longer any need for middlemen like banks or credit card companies. The Fed and its magic coins handle everything. Some planning documents for CBDCs discuss still including private banks in a public-private partnership system, much like the one that's been forcing everybody to get jabs they don't want, but hey, moving on. But that's only because customers love banks so much and because banks would love to keep charging fees for handling your money as long as they can, even if in reality they're reduced to being totally redundant husks for central bank software. It's a nice diagram that shows you how it works. Among their many conveniences, CBDCs could also greatly simplify moving money across borders. Something as complex as SWIFT would no longer be needed. If you're moving digital dollars into your investment account from your office in Dubai, that would be as simple as receiving the Fed's digital blessing. Meanwhile, converting dollars into euros, for example, would be slightly more complex, but just require a pre-existing agreement between the Fed and the European Central Bank to allow this. Now, of course, if either party did not want you to be able to exchange your money, you'd be out of luck. And finally, because these digital coins are minted out of code, they are easily programmable to function or not function, however or whenever the central bank wants them to. A small detail about which we'll get into later. But first, how did we get here anyway? Cash has been working at least fairly well for a few thousand years. Why is it suddenly now a matter of the highest urgency for the United States to push for a technological revolution in money? Well, in truth, momentum toward the development of CBDCs has been building for years. Ever since Bitcoin appeared and demonstrated that digital currencies were a thing now. Once they caught on, central bankers started doing their own research into how they could best jump on the crypto bandwagon too. Now, over the last several years, one central bank after another has released reports on what it might look like. As in a summary report by the uh, BIS, as as they put it, Central banks' interest in CBDC has increased as a potential means of delivering their public policy objectives while allowing them to evolve in step with the wider digitalization of people's day-to-day lives. I mean, that that sounds pretty tame. 
But can you consider what that actually means? They also say profound ongoing changes across finance, technology, and society, as well as the ongoing COVID-19 crisis, provide additional impetus for doing so now that there seems to be the opportunity for some kind of reset or something. So eight of the largest central banks, including the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, and the Bank of Canada, among others, have decided to form a tentative consortium with guidance from BIS in order to enable interoperability and cross-border transactions between their domestic CBDCs as they move forward with development. Now, in their public reports, these banks all tend to cite the same reasons why implementing a CBDC would be beneficial. A Fed report from January, for instance, portrays a CBDC as a way to support faster and cheaper payments and to offer the general public broad access to digital money that's free from credit risk. In particular, it argues, quote, promoting financial inclusion, particularly for economically vulnerable households and communities, is a high priority for the Federal Reserve, end quote. Now, Biden's executive order also calls for the need to promote equitable access to safe and affordable financial services by affirming the critical need for safe, affordable, and accessible financial services as a U.S. national interest that must inform our approach to digital asset innovation, including disparate impact risk. Would you like some dressing with that word salad? Okay, just wondering. And the ECB figures uh, digital, (coughs) excuse me, the European Central Bank, figures a digital euro could not only increase choice, competition, and accessibility with regard to digital payments, supporting financial inclusion, but also represent an option for reducing the overall costs and ecological footprint of the monetary and payment systems. Now, the Bank of Canada says the CBDC could be necessary in the future to ensure a competitive digital economy and to solve market failures on social and economic issues. Hey, it'd be a great way to shut down protesting truckers, too. Oh, wait, they didn't say that, but clearly we can see that. So under what conditions would a central bank find it necessary to issue a digital currency, the bank asks rhetorically? Well, the answer to the previous question is somewhat trivial. If a CBDC is expected to increase welfare, then a central bank should issue one. Oh, so simple. Now, that sounds nice and all, but still, why the new level of urgency? I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Fed Chair Jerome Powell was going around saying that when it came to CBDCs, it was important to get it right, more important to get it right than to be first, given the potential risks and important trade-offs that have to be thought through carefully. Well, fortunately, you can always count on Americans to say the quiet part out loud. The United States derives significant economic and national security benefits from the central role that the U.S. dollar and United States financial institutions and markets play in the global financial system. Biden's new executive order states, therefore, the United States has an interest in ensuring that it remains at the forefront of responsible development and design of digital assets and the technology that underpins new forms of payments and capital flows in the international financial system. Or as BlackRock's former head of global sustainable in, global head of sustainable investing and now director of the U.S. National Economic Council, Brian Deese put it, even more directly, the approach outlined in the EO, the executive order, will reinforce U.S. leadership in the global financial system and safeguard the long-term efficacy of critical national security tools like sanctions and anti-money laundering frameworks. All right. Yeah, you see, it turns out that it's the Chinese that have pioneered the development of a CBDC, that's the digital yuan, 
and even begun putting it into limited circulation and testing its cross-border functionality. Now, there's much more to this article. This is a pretty in-depth thing, but I want you to check it out. Look, has it not made, you know, some kind of an impression as far as how the implementation of a central bank digital currency could represent the single greatest expansion of totalitarian power in human history? Never has there been any regime with such omnipotent insight into and control over its people's every transaction as what CBDCs may soon make possible. No Xerxes, no Caligula, no Stalin, no Kim Jong-un ever has held such power. And yet this is what will soon be smuggled into use in our societies in the name of convenience, social justice, and patriotism. Maybe this is why we should say no to CBDCs. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just taking a moment here to thank the Heather Turner team from Patriot Home Mortgage for being a sponsor of this program. Heather and her team not only have helped to to keep me on the airwaves and to keep me uh, out there uh, speaking the truth as best I understand it, but they've also helped an awful lot of people secure loans, whether it's uh, traditional home loans, VA loans, reverse mortgages, or just a refinance on your existing home loan. Yep, they've done a lot. And, And there's a reason for this. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage brings decades of experience in the lending industry. Heather understands what the lender needs. She understands what the borrowers need. And most importantly, if uh, you need to make that purchase happen quickly, like just, you know, for instance, if there was a really competitive real estate market, this is where Heather's expertise comes through. You can call her at 435-703-4522. You can click the email link I provide in my sponsor links in my show notes. You can stop by 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. And keep in mind that Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on this uh, next story, but I am going to encourage you, please check out my show notes so that you can can click on this and, and check it out for yourself. I almost didn't share it because there was there was just a whiff of sensationalism that... Uh, that I was like, oh, I don't know. This this one feels like it might. <laughs> this feels like it could be just a little bit um, too uh, over the top. And I don't I don't like to use sensationalism. But there's there's something that I am seeing coming from a number of different sources. This one just had a little more comprehensive take on it, and that is two uh, things that we will have to get used to, or at least we're going to be learning more about, and that is food scarcity and food inflation. Now, I promise you from the bottom of my heart, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to create panic. But I'm definitely trying to bring some awareness to a challenge which may be in front of us that uh, that we don't have a lot of control over in that events have set things in motion <clears throat> that are going to play out over the next couple of years. And it's it's coming. The headline here, this is from Citizen News, actually says, Global crop collapse now a certainty. Widespread famine to plague planet Earth from 2022 to 2024. It is set in motion and cannot be stopped. Now, some of the reasons for a coming global shortage of food include 
Floods and droughts causing sharp drops in crop production in China, Russia, and the U.S., among other nations. Economic sanctions against Russia causing a halting of exports for food and fertilizer. War in Ukraine leading to a halting of the 2022 planting season for wheat, corn, soy, and other crops. I'm sure you've been aware of this, but Ukraine really is kind of the bread basket of that region. Also, war in the Black Sea blocking ship movements in the ports, such as Odessa, which normally export crops. The Biden administration's shutting down a fossil fuel operation in the U.S., adding significant costs to fertilizers and agricultural operations. And global fiat money currency printing, uh, fiat currency money printing, making food inflation reach atrocious levels. Now, these are things that are all going on right now. And the thing you got to keep in mind is that when when the plants take time to grow, you don't instantly create new crops and well, there we'll just put put in new ones in the ground and away they go. If they don't get planted or if they get destroyed, there's no instant replacement. And there's seasons that you have to deal with. And and so this is, uh, it's not all human caused. Some of it is weather caused. Some of it is, you know, natural. But scarcity means that there's no remaining supply no matter what the cost. And when that comes to food, you're talking about some pretty intense times. Inflation means the food that is available is going to be significantly higher in price. Both of these situations could cause people to panic, which could ultimately lead to widespread civil unrest. Now, I happen to live right in the middle of a very agricultural region, and I love it. Even if occasionally I step out my door and I'm like, whew, okay, the wind is coming from the direction of the dairy about a mile over. Uh, it's, that's a price I'm willing to pay, though, for, for the thrill of seeing, you know, acres, hundreds and hundreds of acres of, you know, corn stalks, you know, blowing in the wind. And it's, it's, it's really an amazing thing to, to see the process that goes from planting and growing these fields, the crop dusters that come overhead and, and, and treat them for different parasites or, or uh, pests and what have you. It's, it's really something. But when you realize the amount of work that goes into it, when you realize how much does it cost to fill up a tractor or to keep it properly lubricated so it's operating oper- op- operating properly, I mean, these these are things that, uh, you, can you see where, where we're starting to hit some sticking points and bottlenecks that maybe this isn't going to be quite as easy as it's been to this point? Even if you have all this farmable land, even if you have the seed, if you don't have fuel and you don't have fertilizer, this is, uh, this is pretty scary. And right now, the article reports farmers are reporting a roughly 300% increase in their cost to produce crops like wheat. And this is due to three primary inputs. One being the cost of fertilizer and seed. Number two, the cost of fuel to power agricultural equipment. And number three, the availability of tractors and other equipment and their parts in order to carry out mechanized agricultural operations. All of these inputs right now are being strained big time due to the conditions mentioned above. And in addition to these factors, fuel costs significantly elevate the transportation expenses once those grains are grown to put them into grain storage or to take them to milling providers. So the rising fuel costs hit the farmers twice, first for the cost of running their equipment, secondly, in transporting their crops. 
And sadly, it looks like diesel fuel is headed towards 6 bucks a gallon, and this is going to put severe upward pressure on food prices across the board. Maybe you already feel a little <clears throat> discomfort as you walk into the grocery store, and you're just kind of looking around going, oh, okay, what's, what's going to be the shock today? What am I going to look at that's going to go, wow, that's gone up a lot? See, for me, it's always bacon. <laughs> for some reason, that's the one that I'm like, okay, all right, well, maybe maybe we'll go for the turkey bacon. No, I'm, I'm not that desperate. But again, my goal here is not to, to cause you to be fearful, but I think this is, of, of all the hard facts that we have to face and all the, the um, difficult reality that we're all currently trying to deal with today, and there's a lot on our plates, this is a really important one. Because without access to food, um, tragedies and, and desperation begin to set in. I don't want to see us get to that point. And the crazy thing is at this point, I don't know that there's a ton that we can do. A lot of people live in places where they just can't grow their own food. But where you can, you'd be surprised at what you can do um, in, in, with just some determination and, and a small growing space. I mean, look, worst case scenario... You live in an apartment. You don't have anywhere. You don't have soil to grow food. Get yourself a good-sized bucket of sprouts and consider sprouting so you have something green, healthy, living that you can uh, can use to, to augment your food supply. And I'd also encourage you to think of it in terms of not just feeding yourself. I have a dear friend in southern Utah who uh, has, has been helping people for years, like for almost 12, 13 years now, helping people build greenhouses and learn how to garden year-round. Now, he lives up, up on the Black Ridge or above the Black Ridge where, you know, um, there's four seasons for sure. And it's the most remarkable thing in the world to walk into one of his grow houses and say, whoa, that's, you got fresh lettuce growing in the middle of January. It's doable, even when the outside conditions are not real hospitable. But Someone asked him the other day, hey, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to feed the whole world? And my friend just kind of chuckled and said, well, you know, he sees, he has seen this coming for some time. He has seen the breakdowns in the monetary system, the breakdowns in the food supply, the, the supply chain itself, and is, is doing everything he can to help people get on their feet and be able to provide not just for themselves, but also for their neighbors. See, I think this is a really responsible way to do this because then it's not just, well, that Ayn Rand, well, you're on your own, good luck, (laughs) kind of attitude. So I'll encourage you, please click on the article that I I link in the show notes today. Global crop collapse is now a certainty. And, you know, I look, I'm not going to say anything is absolutely a certainty because I believe with God all things are possible. I also believe, though, that uh, we may have reached a point where, how can I put this nicely? To to be humbled enough to to recognize who is really in charge, it may take something very serious to get people to to realize that uh, we're not all that and a bag of chips. The key is do what you can to better your position. Be aware of what's going on. I mean, I just bought garden tools uh, yesterday for the first time in a long time. I'm going to get my hands dirty. Maybe you should consider doing the same.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Okay, I know I've, I've talked about some pretty heavy stuff in this hour, and uh, look, it's weighing me down too. So let's take a turn towards something that is uh, a little more edifying, something that will give you encouragement. And for that, I'm very grateful I can turn to my, my trusted friend, Barry Brownstein. His Mind Shifts essays are so good. And if you haven't subscribed, you should probably subscribe to Mind Shift, mindsetshifts.substack.com. He's got a new one out here that, uh, that is just wonderful. Thank you is a better mantra than follow the science. I want you to hear how he sets this up. He says, <clears throat> evolutionary biologist Heather Hying delivers a wonderful critique of those who daily chant their devotion to follow the science. This is what she says, quote, children are born curious. And by the time they can string a few words together, they're asking about the meaning of all manner of things. Now, not only do they ask, but they observe and they try and they try again and they experiment. It's not the lack of lab coats and glassware that renders most of them non-scientists by the time they reach the end of high school. Rather, it is active, persistent training in not asking unexpected questions, not making careful and repeated observations, and not questioning accepted dogma, which makes most young people into quiescent, meek young adults who become quiescent and meek middle-aged and old and, and old adults who accept what the authorities say. Now, she says this, I should not have to spell out, is the antithesis of science. Compliance is anti-scientific, yet authorities have managed to convince a whole population that compliance with authorities is scientific and that hashtag follow the science is somehow a scientific final word on the situation, whatever it may be. But the data and analysis being followed are so often hidden and, oopsie, also turn out to be changing all the time. We can't fact check the claims made by hashtag follow the science authoritarians either because we're being denied access to the actual data in most cases. Or the claims are based on such vague arm waving that we can't even know what to try to assess and falsify because what's being claimed anyway. She says, how much health, individual and economic, will be sacrificed globally on this altar? It's censorship in science's clothing. Look closely, you'll find that this has little to do with science. A censor wearing a lab coat is still a censor, and censorship is fundamentally incompatible with science. End quote. Now, Barry does link to the rest of her essay and says it's worth your time to read it. He says, those who proclaim their devotion to follow the science are often misanthropic. At best, they demean others who hold different views. At their worst, like medieval torturers, they demand that others bend to their false idols. He says, remember early in the pandemic, much was made of expressing gratitude to frontline and essential workers. Whether in healthcare, grocery stores, or other industries, these individuals put their lives on the line to serve us strengthening links in the wink in the web rather of interdependence we all share yet expressing gratitude often requires us to notice events from a vantage point different from our habitual stream of thinking barry brownstein says our very existence depends on others seeing the world differently from us living in a rural area there is no natural gas pipeline bringing fuel to heat our home so he says propane is delivered by truck often in challenging weather conditions 
He says, last summer, while talking with a freight driver making a fencing delivery to our home, I learned of his aspirations to earn his hazardous materials driving license. He would improve his life and the lives of his future customers by succeeding in his goal. In, every, in our everyday interactions, Barry says, we can notice that because others make decisions different from our own, our life is possible. Now, from an authoritarian mindset, the follow-the-science crowd demands everyone make the same decisions they do. They may protest, no, not all the decisions, only health decisions. Should we follow their science about the food we eat? Should we follow their science about the medical procedures we elect? There is no one-size-fits-all, not for diet or health or anything else. Barry Brownstein says, from an authoritarian mindset, without missing a beat, some of those who early in the pandemic proclaimed their love of health angels followed the science to demand firing those angels who didn't take their prescribed sacrament. And so he says there is a better mantra than than follow the science, a mantra that reflects the reality of our mutual interdependence. Author, lecturer, and humorist Jonathan Robinson has an antidote to the craven selfishness among those who would dictate the lives of others. And Barry Brownstein says, My telling of his humorous apocryphal tale is adopted from his print and live versions, such as his Google Talk. See, Robinson heard of an Indian guru who taught a magical mantra that helped people develop an attitude of gratitude. Seeking to learn the mantra, Robinson traveled 18 hours by airplane and four hours by rickshaw. Sweating and jet-lagged, Robinson arrived at the guru's ashram uh, ashram rather, to only wait in line for five hours for an audience with the guru. In his presence, the guru whispered in Robinson's ears, Ah, yes, my technique is the most powerful mantra on earth. Whenever possible, repeat the following words in your head. The magical mantra I give you is the words, Thank you. Now, extremely upset, Robinson replies, that's it? The guru instructs Robinson, no, that's it, is the mantra you've been using and the mantra that makes you feel like you'll never have enough. The guru continues that that's it will take you nowhere, but thank you will quiet your mind and open your heart. So when you eat good food, say thank you. When you see your child or a sunset or your pet, repeat the mantra, thank you. And soon you'll have an attitude of gratitude for each blessing in your life. Now, the guru's wisdom finally reached Robinson on his trip home. He noticed miracles of modern life, air conditioning, flush toilets, airplanes, computers. He felt the words, thank you, swelling in his heart and forming on his lips. That's it is the great mindset scourge of our time. That's it makes the whole of humanity less than the sum of its parts. We grumble as we perceive we're on the short end of the stick. That's it makes it difficult to view life in empathy with others. Now, Barry Brownstein says, viewing life in empathy with others allows gratitude to arise in us for those who, like healthcare and grocery workers, put themselves at risk to serve us. A teacher viewing life with empathy sees the education and mental health needs of children. Gratitude for the opportunity to teach diminishes demands to be sheltered. Each of us can see our place in life as service to others, even as others serve us. He says, gratitude does not depend upon circumstances. Gratitude is a function of our state of mind. We are doomed without others making a myriad of decisions different from our own. Mutual interdependence is a fundamental truth of life. And so he counsels, say thank you to those who do not follow the science. 
their decisions help science advance. Our mind will calm and our heart will open with a mindset of gratitude for others who make decisions different from our own. In a mindset of gratitude, we make better decisions as we take our place in the web of interdependence. Now, I was really happy as I was reading this uh, to realize, you know what? I've been following this advice uh, for some time, not knowing that I was doing it, but just hear me out on this. Nothing has deepened my appreciation for life and, and even for the various circumstances I find myself in, not all of which are happy and, you know, things I would choose to be a part of. It's like, oh, great. <laughs> Another challenge. But by that conscious awareness of and, and desire to show gratitude, it really has helped even things that would have been considered very challenging or, you know, difficult to bear become a blessing. I like to say, you know, the, some of the greatest things that have happened in my life showed up disguised as a setback. But by learning to consciously look for those opportunities to recognize and appreciate and to, to feel gratitude, it has changed my mindset to where I'm, I'm much more able to roll with the punches. And no, it doesn't mean I don't ever get upset. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, life is just... Uh, you know, happy, la-di-da, rose-colored glasses all the time. It just helps me maintain, though, pers- perspective and context to where I can realize if, if I'm going through a tough time, and sometimes I do, I can recognize it's a season. This is just, this is a, a temporary place that I'm passing through. And, and, and most importantly, you learn to appreciate the people around you who seem to, do I dare say, magically appear at just the right moment to, to give you some give you some encouragement or to strengthen you in some way. I don't want to sound all sentimental, but uh, I like to step outside, particularly as the sun is coming up or as the sun is coming down. I don't care how cold it is. I don't care if that cold Idaho wind is blowing. I like to step outside occasionally and just uh, reflect on what is in front of me and, and very consciously thank my creator for placing me at this moment in time where I can see and appreciate and experience something like that. I mean, you can liken it to the dandelion break that, uh, you know, the Bloom County cartoon characters used to need. I need a dandelion break. I think we all need a gratitude break, and I promise you, if you put this to the test, you'll find it works exactly as advertised. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So glad you could join me today. I know you're here because uh, you wanted to get a feel for what's going on in the world. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give you the best information that I can find, but I'm also going to try to walk that delicate balance between, you know, giving you the truth straight up, no sugar coating, without uh, either scaring or otherwise angering or inflaming you. 
because there's some pretty interesting stuff taking place right now. We're going to get into that here in just a few moments. Let me start, as I always do, by acknowledging the sponsors who make this program possible. They include lifesavingfood.com, hslammo.com, sewingandquiltingcenter.com, monticellocollege.org, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, this this strong sense that uh, the U.S. and Russia are already at war with each other. Tucker Carlson, whatever you may think of him, that dude has got a backbone of steel because he is challenging the narrative in ways that very few others in mass media are doing. And this is something he said the other day. Hey, that Russia and the U.S. are already at war with each other. It's just it's taking a different form than they're actively shooting their missiles at one another or, you know, trying to blow each other to kingdom come. But it's an economic war that is, is shaping up right under our noses. And we need to understand why that's happening and what it looks like. Michael Snyder says uh, the economic war between the U.S. and Russia just shifted into overdrive. He says economic conflicts have a way of becoming shooting wars, so we should all be deeply alarmed by what we're, what we're witnessing. With each passing day, Authorities in the U.S. and authorities in Russia are imposing even more measures which are intended to punish the other side economically. Now, thankfully, our militaries are not shooting at one another yet, but an economic war has already started and it just shifted into overdrive. Tuesday, Joe Biden announced that his administration has decided to ban all imports of Russian oil and natural gas. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy, Biden said at the White House. That means Russian oil will no longer be acceptable at U.S. ports, and the American people will deal another blow, another powerful blow, to Putin's war machine. Now, about the same time, the government in the U.K. announced that it will be banning Russian oil. Here's a quote from the news article. The U.K. government will ban all imports of Russian oil. Its latest sanctions move against Vladimir Putin's administration over the war in Ukraine. The measure taken in concert with the U.S. will be phased in over the rest of 2022, Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng said. The ban applies to refined products such as diesel, which the U.K. relies on Russia for about a third of its imports. It won't apply to natural gas. Now, Michael Snyder says, will these moves hurt the Russians? And the answer is yes, to a certain extent. The rest of Europe has not joined the U.S. and the U.K. in this boycott yet. And Russia will always be able to sell massive quantities of oil and natural gas to China. Now, in response to this latest move, Vladimir Putin signed an order which will ban the export of certain raw materials. Here's, the, here's an excerpt from the article that he links to. Within hours of Joe Biden announcing a far-reaching ban on all U.S. imports of Russian oil while warning Americans that gas prices are about to go up further, Vladimir Putin is reported to have signed his own countermeasure decree. Russia's RAA news agency is reporting that the new decree blocks all exports and raw materials from Russia of certain materials, with state media reports noting the specific list will be made public in two days. Now, Michael Snyder says, we're going to have to wait and see exactly what's on that list. But he says, I have a feeling that it will definitely include nickel. Why? Well, on Tuesday, the trading of nickel was suspended after it suddenly more than doubled in price. The London Metal Exchange on Tuesday suspended the trading of nickel after prices more than doubled 
to surpass $100,000 per metric ton. The London Metal Exchange said in a statement that day, that uh, trading rather will be suspended for at least the remainder of the day. Now, a global shortage of nickel is going to severely hurt industries all over the planet. You know, it's a very key component of batteries, perhaps uh, kind of like the ones you might find in your electric car. I don't know. It's just something to think about. And, of course, Russia could decide <clears throat> to cut off all oil and natural gas exports to the Western world as well. Now, if that happens, natural gas prices in Europe would soar to catastrophic levels, and the Russians are warning that eventually we could see the price of oil reach $300 per barrel. Russia has threatened to close a major gas pipeline to Germany and warned of $300 oil prices if the West goes ahead with a ban of its energy on its energy exports. It is absolutely clear that a rejection of Russian oil would lead to catastrophic consequences for the global market, Russian Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak said Monday in an address on state television. The surge in prices would be unpredictable. It would be $300 per barrel, if not more. Now, Michael Snyder says, unfortunately, we're not talking about a short-term crisis. He says, Western powers are never going to forgive Russia. And Russia is never going to forgive the Western powers. So a lot of the moves that are being implemented now are likely to be permanent, and that is truly a nightmare scenario. Right now, many Americans are complaining about the rising price of gasoline. In fact, on Tuesday, it hit another brand new record high. After a rising dramatically following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the price of gas has reached a new record, topping an all-time high that stood for nearly 14 years. As of Tuesday morning, the average national price for a gallon of regular gasoline touched $4.17, according to AAA, the highest price ever, not accounting for inflation. That was up from 407 on Monday and from 361 a week earlier. By the way, it's even higher now. I think we're looking at about... Uh, four, roughly almost 450 a gallon now. And this is just the beginning. Now, not too long from now, 417 for a ga- gallon of gasoline is going to look like a rip-roaring bargain, says Michael Snyder. Needless to say, higher gasoline prices are going to be very painful for average American families that are just trying to survive from month to month. According to Yardeni Research, the average household will spend an additional $2,000 per year in gasoline on top of an extra $1,000 in food expenses in 2022. Ouch. You got an extra three grand lying around? Because, you know, get ready to pony up. By the way, speaking of food, he says the war in Ukraine has absolutely paralyzed shipping in the Black Sea and has essentially resulted in a shutdown of the world's second largest grain exporting region. From the article he links to, the war in Ukraine has severely hobbled shipping in the Black Sea with broad consequences for international transport and global supply chains. Dozens of cargo ships are stranded at the Ukrainian port of Mykolaiv, according to shipping trackers. An estimated 3,500 sailors have been stuck on some 200 ships at Ukrainian ports. That according to the London-based shipping tracker Windward Limited. More ships are stranded around the globe than at any point since World War II, maritime historians said. The result is a shutdown of the world's second largest grain exporting region. Ukraine accounts for 16% of global corn exports and together with Russia, 30% of wheat exports. Now, Michael Snyder says, look, as I've explained to my readers many times, we struggle to feed the entire planet, even in the best of years. 
and this is definitely not going to be one of the best of years. Global hunger was spreading rapidly before we got to 2022. Time magazine's reporting the price of wheat has risen by a whopping 70% over the past few months. What we are witnessing, he says, will have a devastating impact all over the planet. For example, Egypt imports more wheat than anyone else in the world, and they normally get almost all of it from Russia and Ukraine. So what's Egypt going to do now? Meanwhile, the price of fertilizer continues to soar to unprecedented heights, and experts are assuring us that a global food crisis is dead ahead. Now, Michael Snyder says, I wish I could get everyone to understand how serious this is. The global food crisis you've been hearing about for years has now arrived, and the poorest areas of the planet are going to be hit the hardest. Now, this war in Ukraine could have been so easily avoided, but there is no turning the clock back now. And his point is simply this. A chain of events has started that nobody is going to be able to stop. And things that were once considered unthinkable will soon become commonplace. Now, that shouldn't scare you into, you know, paralyzed fear of, oh, no, there's nothing I can do. I guess I'll just die. There are definitely things you can do. But it's time to start thinking and and acting where you are. This is where the, the biggest amount of action is going to have to take place. And I know, I know I'm, I'm shining the light on stuff that's going on you know, all over the world here, trying to, to bring awareness to it. But it's not for the purpose of getting you to obsess over it. In fact, one of the best things I can recommend is turn off the TV, turn off the news, and take some time to focus on what's happening right there in your presence, right around you, your neighborhood, your home. It's a better place to start working, and you will see results. Just keep in mind, some serious challenges are dead ahead. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I want to make sure I'm, I'm being clear on how to do this. I've, I've had a little bit of uh, confusion. I actually had a couple of people reaching out saying, hey, I'm not getting the email. So if you go to my show notes, go to my website, first of all. It's thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on show notes. It'll bring up uh, the show notes for the last few days. You can actually see the whole archive if you want to go back and find a particular story or particular topic. But in the show notes, down at the very bottom of the page, is a subscribe button. Click on it. It's going to ask for your email, and when you give me your email, this is my promise to you. It will not be shared or sold to anybody else, but I will drop a copy of those show notes into your inbox every morning as I'm getting ready to to publish them and getting ready to do the show. Easy peasy. I want to continue talking a little bit about the, the economic challenges ahead of us. The steps that are being taken right now by the people in power... Uh, to my thinking, seem to point to a very deliberate effort to implode the world economy for uh, presumably some kind of a reset, maybe even a great one. We'll, we'll see. The, the question is, what's the purpose behind this? Why is this happening like it is? And I strongly recommend the Good Citizen Substack as a place to go for just a really solid take. I, I don't know who the Good Citizen is. I just know that this is a person who takes some pretty careful consideration of things and uh, definitely 
includes uh, aspects of the situation that you just won't find within many of the, the mainstream or mass media narratives. So when the, uh, when the good citizen talks about world economic controlled definition, demolition, rather, the subtitle here is, if they say you will own nothing, it's because they know there will be nothing to own. The good citizen says, we have reached the economic destruction phase of management's silent war plans. The lockdowns that destroyed millions of small businesses over two years for a sniffles bug weren't enough. Currency inflation went from printing trillions isn't happening fast enough. It's the second time for the scorched earth period of the show. The set your own house on fire scene of the second act in the globalists prepared play. The price of oil is exploding up and gushing all over the world like James Dean in the movie Giant. Soccer moms who spend all day watching Real Housewives reruns have no idea what's coming, but when they do, they'll unthinkingly alter their behavior and go out and buy the latest EV the government wants them to. Consumer behavior nudged through international, intentional rather economic pain. The average price of gas will soon have doubled from a year ago. The American middle and working classes who don't nudge will require diapers when filling the tank. The price of anything that needs to be transported will skyrocket. For the Western consumer, that's pretty much everything. And here's the kicker. This is intentional. The fear and angst from the pandemic are wearing off. The plebes had a brief taste of normalcy. With masks, child abuse at schools, I'm sorry, new normalcy, with masks, child abuse at schools, job losses, and myocarditis management pills, but now must be herded back into the proper psychological corrals. All of it helps hide the sudden death syndrome now plaguing the Covidian Borg. The farcical news bulletins get more hilarious by the day. Grocery shopping and the link to cardiac arrest, the story at 11. The pain at the pump has a new meaning. Find out on Good Morning Borg how gas prices can cause heart problems and what you can do to be ready for your sudden death. It's not just sudden death gaslighting and the price of oil. Russia and Ukraine provide nearly a third of the global wheat supply, much of it to Egypt and North Africa. The Black Sea has been closed to exports while the bear does his mauling and the comic lets his people get mauled on the orders of the empire. So that uh, wheat exports are that's why wheat exports are intentionally stalled. Now, the good citizen says the price of wheat will bring out the self-immolators <clears throat> of the Maghreb as it did during the last Arab Spring. Global management would love to see thousands of self-immolators this time around instead of just one. Will they be able to afford gasoline to pour over themselves if they can't afford the wheat? Perhaps they can just use their credit cards to stick it to the bankers before they go. Now, you may think that's kind of kind of dark there, Bri. Why, why are you sharing this with us? I'm just offering this as, as another another bit of evidence that what we see playing out before us isn't just a, a series of unfortunate events that somehow have escaped you know the, the control of the people who are in power. Particularly as I look at what's happening here in the U.S. and I look at uh, the Biden administration's energy policies or their uh, destroying our energy sector policies. It just has a very deliberate feel to it. And of course, you know, the media, if, 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 there, was, if there was ever a time where media was, was to be a watchdog and to warn people, hey, hey, this doesn't look right, you know, a.k.a. Watergate, this would be it. But instead, they gaslight us. 
And they tell us, no, 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 this is all fine. It's all fine. Look, the president says it's great. For that matter, we're all blaming Russia right now for these high gas prices. We all. The, the media and the political administrators are blaming Russia. I mean, for crying out loud, the sanctions are how old? Tuesday, three days old? Wow. Isn't it strange that our gas prices started going through the moon, to the moon um, last month before those sanctions ever kicked in? I don't know how they believe us or how they expect us to believe them when they feed us this kind of garbage. But there's something that very deliberate about, you know, making us economically incapable of taking care of ourselves, of defending ourselves. And I don't know, there, as, as I mentioned in the other hour of the show, there seems to be a very strong push to get to get us away from cash and away even maybe from the dollar. And to, to get us on some kind of central bank digital currency that essentially amounts to a type of universal basic income. And while that sounds good, like, well, really, then I don't have to worry about it. You know, I just know that I have the money to, to take care of my needs. Yeah, the, the problem is you, have, you will have the money under UBI to take care of your needs according to whomever is in power at that time. If you're not supposed to be uh, subscribing to a particular, you know, uh, music service or podcast for that matter, I mean, if it's a subscription, they, they say, no, no, your money doesn't work for that. Well, I, I needed to buy some, uh, you know, gun cleaning supplies. Oh, no, 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 we don't allow that. Ammo? <laughs> you think ammo is still available? I'm sorry. Um, it's hard not to get carried away here, but the idea is that the system is being collapsed in order to bring everybody under control of whatever is to come next. I don't know what the alternative is, but I know that there are people who are working very hard on building parallel economies. And to my thinking, this is probably where our efforts are, are best you know, spent, is, is not so much learning how to work through and, and you know, navigate the system to our advantage of whatever is being imposed on us, but simply figuring out the best way and the best timing to step out of that system and to be as independent and self-reliant as possible. I mean, right now, the, the gas prices are being trumpeted by the current administration as a way to, you know, to, to make this transition into clean energy. As if everybody, <laughs> excuse me, as if everybody can just plunk down 50 grand for an EV and, you know, the electricity somehow is going to be much more affordable and everybody can afford that and you don't, you don't have to worry about it. No. I think the internal combustion engine still has its place and we, we could have energy independence. We have resources available to us. But for some reason, they're all locked up. They're all absolutely put out of reach. And, and the bigger question is why? What's the reasoning behind it? By the way, if you haven't checked out Glenn Beck's uh, book, The Great Reset, I am getting more people are recommending this to me, and I have not read it myself. I'm just saying that the kind of people who are recommending it to me, these are some of the more serious thinkers. And whatever you may think of Brother Beck, I think it might be worth your time to uh, to take a closer look and and see. He's been very good at connecting the dots on some other things. So I guess I'm going to have to get my hands on a copy of it. But something's afoot. But that doesn't mean you have to play along with it.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah is one of our great sponsors. If you know someone in your life who uh, knows how to make use of a sewing machine or is really into quilting or even embroidery, this is where you need to steer them. Especially if you live in southern Utah, because, wow, you get, the, you get the best of all worlds. You not only get, you know, the chance to go in and, and visit them in person, but if you want to learn how to use your sewing machine or your long-arm quilting machine, they'll teach you. They service what they sell, even if, if you didn't buy your sewing machine from them, but it needs service, they'll take care of you. They have all the thread, they have the fabric, they have everything you need to make the most of your sewing, quilting, embroidery, etc., that's sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Even if you just drop them a quick message and say, thanks for sponsoring this program, let them know that their message is reaching your ears. Well, I want to shift gears here for a moment to talk a little bit about uh, the suppression of opposing speech or ideas. And there's a lot of that going on on a number of different levels, people being deplatformed. And the crazy thing about it to me is people are being deplatformed for, for stating things that uh, that later turn out to be absolutely true. But why this desperate effort to, to make sure that, oh, but nobody can think that yet, not until we say it's okay to think that. Take COVID misinformation, for instance. Got a great article here from Connor Friedersdorf from the, uh, the, from the Atlantic. And it says, tolerating COVID misinformation is better than the alternative. He says, it's hardly clear that more aggressive content moderation would save lives. So on December 30th, 2019, Li Wenliang, an ophthalmologist at Wuhan Central Hospital in Hubei, China, began to warn friends and colleagues about the outbreak of a novel respiratory illness. Four days later, he was summoned to appear before local authorities who reprimanded him for making false statements that severely disturbed the social order. So in hindsight... Lee was the first person accused of disseminating medical misinformation during the coronavirus pandemic, despite the fact that he was telling the truth. And as the virus spread, many other countries decided that the emergence of a deadly new disease warranted new restrictions on what people say. Human Rights Watch reports that at least 83 governments used the pandemic to justify violating the exercise of free speech. Now, the United States has avoided the worst excesses of this global authoritarian turn. The First Amendment constrains its government from infringing on freedom of speech. And many Americans reliably object to non-governmental attempts to suppress ideas, favoring the liberal notion that the remedy for speech that is false is speech that is true, as Justice Anthony Kennedy once put it. But like wars, terrorist attacks, and other events that confront us with mass death, Pandemics cause some people to doubt the liberal project and to clamor for an alternative that feels safer. So a growing faction in the U.S. feels that when it comes to medical misinformation, liberal remedies for false, unreasoned, or uninformed speech are insufficient to our new pandemic reality, as if being wrong on most subjects is permissible, but being wrong on COVID-19 is too costly to tolerate. 
Now, Connor Friedersdorf says the First Amendment hasn't kept public officials from calling upon Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and other tech platforms to restrict false or misleading claims about vaccination and other COVID-related issues. The White House has urged tech companies to censor individuals engaged in protected speech. Senator Amy Klobuchar introduced legislation in hopes of pressuring social media companies to do more to prevent the spread of deadly vaccine misinformation. And the government can apply pressure on private speech in other ways. The Department of Homeland Security, for example, is characterizing misinformation as a terrorism threat. All of these efforts reflect a judgment that, at least on pandemic matters, the liberal approach to dissent has greater costs than benefits. But Connor Friedersdorf says that judgment is mistaken. During past crises, even wars, the case for liberal speech norms remains so strong that Americans look back on departures from them with regret. Likewise, he says, I can think of at least four reasons why neither government officials nor corporate bosses should try to protect the public by newly restricting the expression of ideas, even during a pandemic. Number one, open discussion of vaccines enhances trust in them. Proponents of aggressive measures to restrict misinformation imagine that by preventing others from being exposed to falsehoods about vaccines, they will only increase trust in science. But he says, my early confidence in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and my willingness to urge others to get vaccinated was inextricably tied to my confidence that all relevant information, including dissentive perspectives, was making its way into public discourse where countless people could interrogate it rather than being suppressed by public or private actors with unknown motives. The author Jonathan Rausch calls that process of unconstrained public deliberation liberal science. And he says, I suspect that faith in it was especially important for vaccine uptake in the U.S., as Americans report having low trust in in government relative to citizens in other wealthy countries. So if you're vaccinated, he says, think back to before you got the jab and ask yourself. If the Trump administration had announced that federal employees weren't allowed to spread misinformation about any of the vaccines supported by Operation Warp Speed, or if Facebook had suppressed all personal stories of vaccine side effects, would that have have caused you to trust the vaccines more or less? Number two, he says, defining misinformation is almost always a subjective judgment. As a general matter, matter rather, no person, group, or office is capable of assessing what facts or viewpoints constitute misinformation so reliably as to justify censorship based on their conclusions. A concept as malleable as misinformation tends to be interpreted in biased or self-serving ways, and not only by the Chinese government. After Puerto Rico enacted a prohibition on spreading false information about emergencies in 2020, the ACLU filed a challenge on behalf of two journalists who feared the laws would stifle legitimate reporting on the government's COVID response. Now, even if a reliable judge of misinformation did exist in a given jurisdiction, that person wouldn't likely be the one who decides which ideas are restricted. And even if for the first time in history an infallible judge of misinformation was identified and put in charge of restricting ideas, they would still lack popular legitimacy. Many people would disagree and rebel against that judge's decisions. So restricting misinformation during this pandemic is especially unlikely to be viable because the scientific consensus continues to evolve, as does the virus itself. So far, the prevailing advice to get vaccinated has served those who took it extremely well, but 
He says variants could emerge that pose a greater challenge to existing vaccines. If efficacy drops off, people should be able to discuss that in real time without having those discussions labeled as misinformation. Number three, restricting misinformation creates free speech martyrs. Connor Friedersdorf says the backlash against Americans who try to cancel others or shut down conversations rather than engage in them is so widespread that many attempts to deplatform a person inspire others to rally around the target, increasing their fame and reach as well as support for their views. He says, I suspect that this happens again and again, partly for psychological reasons that the political psychologist Karen Stenner describes in the authoritarian dynamic. As she explains it, people with authoritarian predispositions want to suppress difference and achieve uniformity, a project that requires autocratic social arrangements in which individual autonomy yields to group authority. But when they try to force everyone to adopt a social consensus for the greater good, for example, vaccines are good, everyone must get one and no one must speak ill of them. The people who are most adverse to uniformity and protective of difference and diversity suddenly rebel. That's a good point. Number four, the concrete harms of medical misinformation are not well established and are speculative in many cases. The podcaster Joe Rogan has attracted criticism for interviews with vaccine-skeptical guests who made false or misleading claims. Accuracy is worth defending for its own sake, so he says, I wish Rogan would do more to probe dubious claims by guests and flag and correct statements that prove false. And he says, I don't dismiss the possibility that his podcast influenced some to forego jabs or the possibility that some unvaccinated listeners died. The hundreds of medical professionals and scientists who signed an open letter urging Spotify, which carries Rogan's show, to adopt an anti-misinformation policy are clearly hoping that more assertive content moderation will save lives. By the way, though, it should be known that uh, the medical professionals and scientists... Only a handful of those who signed it were actual medical doctors or actual scientists. A lot of them were just simply bloggers, activists with a medical bent. But the bottom line is, any speech limitation, public or private, needs to have a clear limiting principle. And frankly, it's, it's the idea that uh, if, it's, if it's so important that uh, we can't even allow someone to question it, Are you not placing it above reality? I mean, I'm asking this in all sincerity. Is it? I'm sorry, but we cannot question that. Oh, so we we place, you know, whatever that is, then above reality. Did you know that is actually a kind of a textbook definition of what idolatry consists of? And in this case, our idolatry has extended to the science. Look, I'm not going to line up with Connor Friedersdorf on a few of these things here, but I do think he's right. Tolerating misinformation is better than the alternative of putting a gag on everybody. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, before I move forward, I got one thing I want to just suggest for you. I saw this meme earlier today, and this may seem really trite to some people, but I think there's there's something here that, that bears mentioning. Hang on just a sec. I want to make sure I, I'm quoting this correctly. I actually shared this on Twitter, and 
And since I shared it on Twitter, it's important enough. I want to I want to make sure that I'm I'm getting it correct when I try to share it with you. It's it's an image of uh, two people kneeling together in prayer. And it says the best kind of friend is a praying friend. And I bring this up because uh, not because I'm about to start a Sunday school lesson here, but just I know things seem really difficult right now. In fact, uh, the, things seem impossible from some angles. I feel it too. There's times where I'm just overwhelmed. I have to take a break. I'm just like, well, I can't do this. I got I to gotta step outside, get some sunlight, throw the ball for my dog, let him go chase rock chucks around, whatever. I just, I just need a break. But there is nothing that helps bring me back to the feeling of, okay, I've got solid ground under my feet, like prayer. And I know that there are people out there, I, um, I hear from these people occasionally, I know there are people who say, Brian, I pray for you. I pray for, you know, for what you're doing, that you'll be able to, to accomplish what you're setting out to do. And what I'm trying to do is just simply speak the truth as best I can. For people who are looking for it, I'm trying to give them the truth that they need to know where they stand, to have encouragement to move forward, and, and above all, to trust God that you know, this is going to work out because the universe is still under his control. But I would like to encourage you to think about being a praying friend. And I mean that in the sense of uh, who are the people in your life who need prayers right now? I bet you don't have to think very hard to come up with some names. And at the same time, I'm going to encourage you to find time to pause each day, even if it's just for a couple of minutes, and just see if you can have an awareness of the people in your life who are praying for you. I know, for people who don't believe, they're like, really? Okay, this is pretty superstitious, kind of metaphysical there, Bri. Where, where are we going with this? I just know that uh, most of us are feeling some pretty intense pressure right now and, and a sense of, wow, this is, this is getting out of control quickly. And, and of course, the, that comes with, with other thoughts like, well, and how bad could it get? See, and I don't even know if I want to know the answer to that question, but I think there's real power in prayer. And I know that uh, I've had friends who have, have been going through, you know, really difficult times that, uh, you know, were trying them to, to their very center. Who have said, you know, in reflection, as I was going through that difficulty, there was a point where I became very aware that there were people who were actively praying for me. So be aware if you're struggling Know that there are people who are praying for you. If not by name, they're at least, you know, sending out, to, you know, their pleas to God to, to strengthen you and sustain you. And likewise, this is a great opportunity for those who are feeling overwhelmed with all of the uh, negativity and the conflict and, and uh, the, the just falsehoods and, and fog of, of misinformation that's around us. This is a good time to be that person who's actively looking for people to to pray for. I'm going to take it one step further. So if you're already uncomfortable, get ready. This is really going to make you uncomfortable. There's nothing that compares to 
reaching out to somebody and helping somebody who just, you know, has a, a momentary need or, you know, recognizing, hey, I, you know, I see that uh, you, you needed something here or, you know, just acting on an impression that this person needs $20 and you give it to them and you're not sure why, but I felt like I needed to give this to you. And then finding out that you have just brought an answer to someone else's prayer. I know this is sounding, uh, you know, a little little church-like here, but I believe that uh, that's, that's probably how the majority of our prayers get answered is through other people. And when you notice that you are the person, you're the instrument that, that helped somebody else's problem be solved, especially something they were making a matter of prayer, it does two things. It, it increases your love for them and increases your awareness of the people around you, but it also helps to drive home the fact that uh, God is there and very much a part of your life if you're willing to make it so. All right. Thus endeth the sermon. I don't know if there was somebody who needed to hear that. Maybe I'm the one who needed to hear it, but uh, but I felt strongly that that's, that's a message that we should... Uh, we should at least keep, you know, on the back burner for when we need it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish up here. I'm just going to direct you to an article here. I, I'm hearing talk, and maybe you're hearing it too, about U.S. connections to biolabs in Ukraine. And Dr. Robert Malone actually has a pretty good take on this. He, he calls this an attempt to triangulate something approximating truth about Ukraine and biolabs. And this is a very detailed substack. Uh, essay that he has written. But I want to I want to just hit a couple of the highlights. And and in particular, why should you care about what Dr. Robert Malone has to say? Isn't he that anti-vaccine kook? Oh yes, the one who actually helped to uh, pioneer the development of uh, mRNA vaccines. Yes, that's him, the kook, the one who knows nothing about this. Now, here are his bona fides. He says, in addition to being a physician, vaccinologist, virologist, molecular biologist, person who made discoveries as a young man, yielding nine domestic patents which disclose the ideas and reduction to practice of using mRNA as a drug, including for vaccination purposes and all that, he also has worked in biodefense and medical countermeasure development for decades now. And that includes close cooperation through multiple infectious disease outbreaks with scientists at the USA, USA MRIID and the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. So he says, I know these people, I know how they think, I know what they're concerned with and what they do, and his comments reflect only his own opinion and in no way represent any official positions of the Department of Defense, DTRA, or U.S. government. So with that disclaimer out... He offers a few thoughts on what to think about this uh, this claim of of biolabs in Ukraine. And he actually says, let's start with the facts as I believe them to be to the best of my ability. So help me God. And he lists off, oh, I'm guessing is it five, six, seven. Yeah, he's got a bunch. He's got a bunch of different facts that are listed out here. I'm not going to have time to go into them in detail here. But suffice it to say, these things are footnoted, they are backed up, and here's the conclusion that he comes to. He says, in my opinion, the partnership between the Department of Defense, DTRA, as historically structured, and the current government of Ukraine, which has functionally become a client state of the U.S., was ill-advised. 
And what that means is, yes, there was and potentially still is U.S. involvement with biolabs in Ukraine. And the mismanagement of how this is is being you know portrayed to, to people. I mean, look, there's a huge propaganda war going on. In fact, he says, please, let's stop the propaganda media war response to every crisis. But it appears that there there is substance to the idea that, yeah, the U.S. has been involved. And, you know, the, the idea that, well, you know, we need to we need to take great care here and and uh, make sure that, you know, the Soviet uh, era labs, you know, didn't fall into the wrong hands. Well, how many years has it been since the Soviet Union fell? It's been over 30 years. You would think that would be time. And Dr. Robert Malone goes into some details about, well, what are some of the types of research they might be doing? Not just in relation to, uh, you know, you know, disease management and disease spread awareness, but, you know, are they doing uh, defensive as well as perhaps offensive research? And these are things that, that really do need to be asked about. So if you're looking for a, an informed opinion on this, but he, he again qualifies it, this is just his opinion. He's not making any kind of official statement. You could do a lot worse than Dr. Robert Malone. So I've got a link to his substack to the particular article about, uh, about the, the biolabs in Ukraine. Extra points, by the way, to Dr. Malone for quoting from Jimi Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower. That was pretty cool, and it actually fit really well with what he was discussing here. But you make up your own mind as to whether or not this is something that's worth pursuing down the rabbit hole. All I know is most of the news media sources, certainly nearly all the government agencies that are telling us what to think about the conflict in Ukraine, are as full of it as a Christmas goose. So, don't buy into their groupthink. Maintain your autonomy and be willing to do your own homework. I guess that pretty well covers it. This is The Brian Hyde Show.